Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Always great to have you with us with Chris Dorch of Blue Ribbon. I'm Kevin Ingram. And uh, coming up on today's show, we're just going to hit on a bunch of uh, off-season topics, including the change at West Virginia, what's new in the transfer portal, is San Diego State uh, moving somewhere other than the Mountain West Conference, and some rule changes for college basketball, touching all those things as we uh, move through the next few minutes here. Chris, what's going on? I know uh, as we record this, yesterday was Father's Day. Did you do anything uh, special for the day well uh you know had my kids and, and grandkids around me and uh my wife knocked my socks off with, with something um a couple of days ago she asked me to get this big heavy box out of her trunk and uh she said do you want to see it at your father's day gift and i said no i i, I want to wait and she said well you've talked about this forever you wanted this forever and i racked my brains and, and i couldn't think of what it was so when time comes to open it, uh, there's a box in the box. Then I open that box and there's another box. And then I finally get the thing open and it's this gigantor telescope. Oh, wow. And she had heard me saying for years, oh, I wish I had a telescope. Uh, remember when not that long ago, Jupiter was in view and you could see its moons with the naked eye and I just thought how cool it would be. And uh, it's this big old telescope. I mean, it's it, it's as big as a cannon. And uh, my kids love to put things together. So uh, they immediately set, ab- set about it and put it together. And, and uh, so I'm looking forward to it. I, I wouldn't call myself a, an astronom- astronomy buff by any means, but uh, I've always been uh, interested in, in things in the night sky. Uh, that's a story for another time. <laughs> so you're like the Galileo of college basketball. <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, it's just something, uh, I don't know. I, I just always try to keep myself busy with things other than hoops. So I don't become just this kind of robotor guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, just to have other interests. Uh, as long as we're on the subject, you too are a father. How was your father's day? Uh, my Father's Day was great. I just spent it uh, hanging out with, with my wife, Amy, and my son, Reed. And, and it's funny, uh, you got a telescope, and I got a uh, space-related uh, object, too, as a, a gift for Father's Day. Uh, Reed and I like to put together Lego sets, and so they bought me a, a Lego space shuttle discovery it also had a telescope like it has a lego hubble telescope uh, you know how the you know the doors opened up for the yeah. bay on the space shuttle and they they put the uh, hubble space telescope out there a few years ago well uh yeah they, they got me that lego set so looking forward to putting that together uh, we built some really neat ones over the years so that was fun and yeah just really had a great day we didn't we didn't do a whole ton on saturday we just sort of or on sunday i should say we just sort of hung out at home and that was uh, really what i wanted to do i watched uh, some of the u.s open and watched some baseball so yeah, yeah it was a yeah. nice day yeah first u.s open that i ever uh i think watched till 10 p.m <laughs> yeah i know that they probably like that i was thinking about this the tv folks probably really like having it on the west coast and yeah. that it can stretch into that prime time Sunday night window and uh, when they finish up. And uh, it was really interesting to see uh, Wyndham Clark win that thing and uh, just how yeah. emotional he was coming up 18. You really you really appreciate how much that meant to that guy in terms of where he was in his career. That was good stuff. Yeah, it really was. And I, I had never seen Los Angeles Country Club. Usually, you know, I think the tour plays at Riviera out there. And I'd never really seen... I covered the U.S. Open when I was a golf writer, but never – I don't know. Honestly, I, 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 
I don't know when the last time the Open was at LA Country Club, but that's a cool old course. Uh, I, I mean, it, it it almost stems back from the beginnings of golf in this country. That's how old it is. And, you know, the city had kind, of, kind of built up around it, but it was a challenging course. Those last three uh, par fours, dude, I don't know if we could reach them with a driver and, and, and bazooka. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, and they had gigantic greens that uh, made – trying to keep from three putting uh, really interesting too at times but uh that was that was fun to watch yesterday uh as far as blue ribbon uh the yearbook it feels like work is year round what trends are you noticing as you talk to some coaches this off season well oddly enough the first couple of coaches i spoke with uh the topic was retention uh appalachian states dustin current they return all five starters and that's a rarity in, in, in today's college basketball world. And he had a great quote here. Um, he told me, retention is now arguably the greatest form of recruiting. So if you think about it, they play in the Sun Belt, which kind of got plundered by some power conference schools uh, for, for other kids. And, and so to be able to, to, to have five starters back, also talk to – uh, a friend of the show, uh, Lenny Acuff from Lipscomb, and they have four starters back. And what is unusual about both those programs is that they redshirt kids in an era where kids don't want to be redshirt. Right. So um, it it just tells me, and, and this is something Dustin Kern said, if you build camaraderie and, and make everybody feel a part of something, and, and Lenny is such a great offensive mind and such a good dude, kids just – you know, will submit to being redshirted and and agree to hang around, even though uh, you know there's a guy for Appalachian State, uh, Donovan Gregory, first player in their school's history to score a thousand points, get five hundred boards, three hundred assists. He's a graduate student, could have gone anywhere, and even Dustin was su- surprised that he came back because I don't know if you've been to Boone. It's a great town, but it's one of the more remote whistle stops uh, in D1 basketball. Yeah, I've driven up there on some icy mountain roads before. Uh, but, but yeah, for I just thought that was interesting to see, despite what we're hearing to the contrary, that some programs are able uh, to, to have some retention. And we had great conversations, but that's one of the things I really enjoy about this process as we tape this, uh, I'm I'm getting ready to go to a, an SEC school practice uh, drive there today, and just to talk to the coaches and and see what's going on and see what they think about other schools and their leagues, and always end up having great conversations with coaches. Uh, I thank Sonny Smith for that. He gave me the, the the former Auburn and East Tennessee State coach. He gave me the gift of understanding the game from the coach's standpoint. And I've always been able to have great conversations and build relationships with coaches. And, you know, I, I've told you this before. Every time I see Sonny, I thank him for my career because I don't think I could have been gotten to the place places I've been without uh, the prior knowledge that he gave me. As far as the, the transfers that are still out there, anything new among a couple of the bigger names that, that are still left? Well, the one that intrigues me the most – is Antonio Reeves. He technically you know, he pulled out of the draft. He technically is on Kentucky's roster, but it's been a big 
Twitter controversy. Somebody got, uh, I don't know how they got this, but uh, he's enrolled at Illinois State, and they they got it on screen, and they screenshotted it, and they put it up on Twitter. He's taking summer classes, and his intention is to graduate. Then he can become a grad transfer and go anywhere he wants. So I don't think he's that means he'll be coming back to Kentucky. And that's not good news because uh, he was a big-time scorer. And whoever gets him, it'll be August before he actually graduates and can leave. I'm sure he's – in fact, you know he's been approached. Uh, that's that's the other thing. I In talking to some coaches, uh, regular season doesn't stop. Uh, being on another team doesn't stop anybody. No. They just go to the AAU coaches and the old high school coaches. So I'm sure – Antonio has some idea of where he wants to go, but he's the most intriguing one that's left out there after Grant Nelson from North uh, North Dakota State signed with Alabama. Uh, Alabama desperately needed a big, and this is a kid uh, who's perfect for that system. You know, he can get defensive rebound and take the ball up the court. He can shoot threes, although that's not his strength. He can score in the paint. He's a good facilitator and passer, so – that was one of the more key acquisitions, uh, not not only of the late portal period, but but of the whole portal season, I think. The transfer window is closed at this point. And one thing I was reading about that I thought was interesting that maybe I had missed, uh, the NCAA has new guidelines from this spring for two-time undergraduate transfers to get immediate eligibility, and they're, they're cutting some of that back. And uh, it's basically just going to be issues related to mental or physical health, discrimination and learning disabilities. Do you you think they'll be able to enforce this when guys want to transfer for a second time as an undergraduate? And part of what I was reading was saying, and I believe it was Jeff Borzella from ESPN.com that was writing this, is that, you know, a lot of people were sort of approaching this like, hey, we'll believe it when we see it, that they're going to enforce these things. How, How do you look at that? Well, it's funny you say it that way because in talking to several coaches, uh, they are extremely dubious of that sort of enforcement. But if, if you're asking me what I think, I it needs to be enforced because if you're going to open it up, and remember, in the past, it was always open for uh, non-revenue sports, golfers, yeah, tennis players right. could, could leave at will. And and now when you do that for, for the big-time sports uh, – I'll tell you, it just the rich still continue to get richer, and everybody just plunders uh, the level below them. Uh, power conferences raid, like I said, leagues like the Sun Belt, and the Sun Belt then raids Division Two basketball. Uh, Belmont. I was talking to Casey Alexander. They have a D two kid. Yeah, uh, that they signed. Think he's going to be a a major help. He's uh, first team All League at Lee University. So. Uh, everybody plunders uh, the level below. And and I just, they need to take some of that out of the equation. And and to be more strict on this two-time transfer rule, I think is one answer uh, to solve it. And I'm not saying that kids shouldn't be able to go where they want to go. Certainly coaches are, and certainly coaches benefit from the financial gains. And, uh, you know, I wasn't a big fan of NIL at first, but now I've come to understand it and say more power to um, somebody like Olivia Dunn, the, the gymnast at LSU who makes $2 million a year NIL, you know, more power to her. But I think at some point uh, there has to be rules that are enforced. And 
this two-time transfer rule. Like you said, unless there's health issues or or what have you, I, I think they should hold hard and fast to it. How interesting is it to compare how rosters are constructed now? You're talking about retention being a key thing for a, a lot of programs, but let's say you look at how Rick Pitino is going about it at his latest stop, St. John's, with 12 new additions, including only a couple of high school recruits. Uh, Simeon Wilcher signed up there last week. Versus one of Patino's previous stops, Kentucky, which, as you detailed a minute ago in talking about Antonio Reeves, is now one of the youngest teams in the country. And that, that kind of takes people back to those days to uh, when John Calipari was first there. And it seemed like a whole roster of one and dones every season. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm wondering how many uh, uh, big blue nation uh, uh, residents wish that uh, Rick were were back in, in Lexington. But uh, it's interesting. If you look at Kentucky, and, and this is a question that I'll have to resolve before the end of the Blue Ribbon process, maybe I can get you to help me. Uh, Kentucky's going to have, uh, right right now, I think they have eight or nine scholarship players. They just signed two freshmen. Uh, so that that's six freshmen, I think, and two little-used sophomores they'll be the probably the youngest team in the country. Whereas St. John's, uh, Rick's just gone crazy, just signing all kinds of kids. Uh, Wilcher was the big one because he decommitted from North Carolina to join him up there. And then he's gotten some really good uh, acquisitions from the portal, including the Ivy League player of the year, a kid named Jordan Dingle of Penn. So, yeah, there's a couple of ways of, of looking at things. Uh, one is like – UAB coach Andy Kennedy told me, he said, I've just given into it. We're a transfer program. Why would I take a chance on a high school freshman? Not that he doesn't sign freshmen when I could get a kid who's played three years in college and I know what he can do. And then there are schools like Belmont, which you called for 17 years, that are always going to try to do it with freshmen and, and, and building. Um, then there's a program like Tennessee, which has um, predominantly done it with freshmen and 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 coaching players up, but now they've they've realized that in order to fill needs, like say UConn did after last year, in order to build its championship team, you've got to go to the portal to get specific needs. And Tennessee's specific needs were scoring the ball, so they went out and got three guys that can put it in the hole. So. It's interesting. There's different philosophies, but it's I, I, the the coaches I've talked to so far. They just liken it kind of to the wild, wild west. It's just there's there's no I don't know. There's no continuity. It's just not like the old days. So we're all going to have to adapt. Uh, even seeing uh, USC and and UCLA in the Pac-10, <laughs> I know. You wanted to talk about the Bill Walton 30 for 30 again. Yeah. Uh, he's got to be bummed that <laughs> is leaving the Conference of Champions. <laughs> the Conference of Champions. From the Wild West to West Virginia, Bob Huggins uh, out after a DUI arrest in Pittsburgh uh, back on Friday. And that was following a suspension and salary cut for what he said on the radio just a few weeks ago. Uh, he's a guy who took uh, West Virginia to 11 NCAA tournaments in 16 years as coach of the Mountaineers, including the Final Four in 2010. He also took uh, Cincinnati to 11 straight NCAA tournaments. He was inducted in the Naismith Hall of Fame in 2022. Before we talk about who might be next there, how do you view Bob Huggins and his career as a coach? 
That's a very, very good question. I think there, there was a time uh, when he had a reputation of, of taking kids uh, like the guy who punched out a police horse. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, just guys that maybe were on their last chance, Juco guys, which at that point had a negative connotation. Uh, and they played a rough and tumble brand of basketball. I don't know. He, he got to West Virginia and changed a little bit. He started the pressing, which I never thought I'd see Bob Huggins do. And, and, uh, but he's always had this reputation. He's a jovial enough dude. If you get to know him and, and, uh, but I don't know, a little bit of dark side there. And, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like this last month, he sort of had a death wish. You, you hate to see a hall of famer kind of ended in, in this kind of fashion, but Maybe when he was on the radio and he uttered those slurs, he had a couple in him. Who knows? Yeah. And and certainly this latest thing, he blew 2.1 on, on the breathalyzer. Dude, that's, I mean, I don't drink personally, but I've read of these things. That's off the charts. Oh, yeah. A point two one is double the legal limit. You know, that that's really bad shape. Dangerous. And if he hadn't have blown a tire, I don't know, that might have saved his life because he stopped. Uh, police stopped to help him, and then when he, when they tried to get him to pull it off the road, he couldn't negotiate that. And when they tried to talk with him, he, you know, he was unintelligible practically. So, you know, and then they they took the breathalyzer, and that's just it's scary. I mean, he could have killed himself and others. So, uh, West Virginia was left with no choice, especially on on the heels of of what he did last month, and. It, it just seems like he's sort of, like I said, had a death wish. Like, But it speaks to a bigger problem. And, and if he's got a drinking problem, and, you know, admittedly, he's not the picture of health, no, nor has been for years. He had a heart attack years ago. And usually when guys have some sort of health issue, and I know I had one a few years ago, you either do, you do one of two things. You just say, man, screw it. Or you you work hard to, to make changes and get yourself better. And I don't know that he did that. And clearly drinking is is still an issue with him. And I hope he I hope this uh it, it may end his career, but I hope it extends his life. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I'd agree on all of those things. Uh yeah, you hope he can get the help he needs and uh you know, if if nothing else, be there for his family for a lot of years to come. That that is for sure. Uh, it's a bad timing for West Virginia to make a coaching hire. And I saw a little bit of everybody mentioned. Uh, I even saw John Beeline mentioned who hasn't been there since he's 70 years old thousands. Yeah. You know, he's (laughs) a lot of water's gone under the bridge since he was coach at West Virginia. Where do you see him going here? I read Beeline too. And then it's a different world than when he left it. I always thought it was crazy that they went to the NBA. I I thought he was a college guy Mm -hmm. through and through. Uh, the NIL and, and the portal, I don't know, at 70 years old, he, he wants to get into that. But Rick Pitino's 70, and don't bother him. Uh, I think the prudent move right now, because they, according to whatever polls you look at, they've got the number one transfer recruiting class right now. And those guys could just as easily scatter and get back into the portal, I, I, I would think. I, I don't know if the NCAA would hold them to it uh, like we talked about a while ago. But to me, the prudent move is to, is to name Ron Everhart, uh, who's an assistant coach there now, 
uh, as interim. He's been a head coach at McNeese State, Northeastern, and Duquesne. That wouldn't be his first rodeo. Uh, there's precedent when a successful head coach of a power conference team gets gone suddenly and is replaced uh, by his assistant. I'm talking about you, Texas. Rodney Terry took over. He'd been a head coach at two other schools. It wasn't his first rodeo. So I think the prudent move is to, is to go with Ron Everhart and see if he can win the job outright, but certainly keep that roster together. Uh, you know, I was talking to the one of the associate ADs at Charlotte, and uh, they ended up, after having a national search and hiring a search firm, they ended up promoting a, a, an assistant. And, and part of it was to to keep the roster together. And part of it was he interviewed well. He said, I'm not afraid of any of this. I'm not afraid of a one-year contract. Let's bring it on. Let's see what I can do. Yeah. So I think that's what's going to happen at West Virginia. It should happen. Yeah, and you mentioned the roster. Uh, they added three impact transfers to go with a couple returning starters. So that part of it looks good. And uh, we'll see if that group indeed stays together. Uh, San Diego State has given written notice to the Mountain West Conference that they're leaving. Uh, if they give official notice before June 30th, there's a big difference in the exit fee. It goes from $16 million to $34 million if they go after that date. What they said they actually did was requested a one-month extension waiting to see, I, I think, if the Pac-12 is going to get a new TV deal done. Uh, that would make the most sense for them in terms of a conference move. Maybe the Big 12 is also in play, but you, you figured that was probably coming. I, I thought for years that San Diego State and the Pac-12 made a lot of sense, but we'll see where their next stop might be, especially after their deep tournament run here. Yeah, you and I poke fun all the time at, at, at the ridiculous uh, geographic moves that, that have been made. This would be perfect if they went to the Pac-12. I mean, obviously, the, the Pac-12 has taken a big hit from the SoCal region if they lose UCLA and USC, and San Diego State would, would help that a lot. And to say nothing of, of their uh, their skill, I mean, they were – competing for a national championship ucla and usc were not so uh you know basketball wise uh, obviously there's a lot of tradition at sc and ucla but basketball wise on the floor right now in today's world they wouldn't lose a whole lot so we'll see but yeah that was not surprising at all that's been one of the least surprising results of what some people call the silly season uh, when everything happens, coaches firings and portals and NIL deals and conference shifting, San Diego State uh, leaving the Mountain West was probably the least surprising <laughs> event for me so far. Some rule changes approved for NCAA basketball, and, and, and I don't know how this particular one is going to be officiated much differently, but I'm sure they'll figure it out. Uh, a slight change to how charges are called, with the defender having to be in legal guarding position before the offensive player plants a foot to leave the floor. Under the old rules, you had to be in position before the player went up. Uh, that that sounds to be, you know, we're talking about a play that's going really fast. I don't know how you determine between those two. And also, uh, basket interference can be reviewed during the next media timeout if it was called on the floor. Shot clock will be reset to 20 seconds and an offensive rebound that hits the rim. Players can uh, go back to getting timeouts while they're in the air with a ball. This used to be legal. They outlawed it for a few years, but that's back. Players can wear numbers uh, from 0 to 99, which will make it more challenging for play-by-play -play guys to read the officials' hand signal. 
professionals. And uh, non-students can now leave the bench during an altercation to serve as peacekeepers. So there, there's a quick recap of some of the rule changes that have been approved. I was wondering when, when you were going to get to that one. Uh, that one stuck out. Uh, bench personnel. Yeah, you, you would think that. Why was that not a rule before? It's like <laughs> you want all hands on deck to, to, to break up a melee, you know. But, uh, yeah, I'm with you. Block charge might be the most difficult thing to for any official in any sport to get right consistently. And uh, now, I don't know. Uh, to, I guess if I think replay will be used more than ever because now you're going to have to see if somebody planted with an intent to go airborne rather than just be airborne. I don't know. To me, it seems like it might make it harder. I think there are too many charges being called for one thing. But the thing yeah. I, I don't like is when a guy is driving with the ball and the defender is there with him. There's a minimal amount of contact. The defender flops and they call a charge. I, I felt like I saw that way too much, especially this past season. That's one I would like to see addressed as much as anything. And maybe this helps that a little bit. But to me, the, it didn't go far enough in addressing you know some of the things on block charge calls that I feel like are, are maybe the biggest problems. Well, that's a great point, and and it brings up something that I've always thought, too. I think some officials can get whistle-happy, and they'll they'll call what I, what I call it a, a ticky-tack foul on the offensive player when no real advantage is gained. Right. There's some sort of incidental contact, and they blow the whistle. If, if the offensive player didn't outright push that defender out of his way and score a basket – if, if there's in, just incidental contact, I mean, let's blow the whistle less. You know, I don't, I don't want to say no blood, no foul, but a little more like when we were kids and we played on the asshole in pickup games. You kind of called your own, and you really didn't – you were prudent with those because you, you didn't want to get the reputation of – Yeah, you want to be that guy. Nobody would play against you, you know. Right. So, yeah, so I think in general uh, – I would like to see the whistle blown far less often. Another thing that intrigued me about um, the the rule changes is what they're going to do in the NIT. They're going to widen the lane to 16 feet. And and I know people disagree with me on this, but I think that would clean up post play. Uh, it, it would open up driving lanes. And I'd just like to see what it does. I'm sure uh, scoring would increase. Um, the chance to need uh, bench personnel to break up melees would decrease because, you know, rough play in the post is is what gets some of that trash talking and, and, and elbow throwing started in the first place. So I don't know, but I, I'm with you. I, I just, I would like to see less whistles in general. Yeah, I think in a game that needs more offense, less whistles might uh, be something that could help, but uh, we'll see how yeah, this I mean, you don't, kind you don't of impact guys, those makes. You don't want guys getting away with, you know, you've you've heard of the so-called power guard. I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but, you know, a 6'4 guy that God blessed him uh, with great strength and he weighs like 230 and he can just back and bully his way in. Uh, you know, I don't think you should just let that guy drive with impunity or knock people over with his backside or, you know, push people around. But... I'm just saying, let's let's eliminate the ticky tack ones, and and save that whistle for something that really needs to be called. 
and and I'm not criticizing officials. It's being a basketball referee is the toughest job in sports, I think. I remember when I coached a peewee league team, we had a game one uh one day and the refs didn't show, so I had to don the whistle. Oh. And he, even those little punks were ripping me. <laughs> it's you- like it's just built in, you know? And it's like those guys take more grief than anybody in sports. So I hope this makes it easier. I don't know that it will, but I think in general, uh, blow that thing less and we'll all be a lot happier. Did you tee anybody up or run anybody or anything like that? Uh, Anybody chase you to the car? One kid was, I thought I was going to have to chase, but uh, I I think his, his father caught wind of the fact that he was getting a little mildy. (laughs) (laughs) I thought to myself, man, this is just ingrown. These kids are, what, six, seven years old, and they're ripping me. <laughs> and let the record show that Chris Dorch never called a foul when he was playing pickup ball in the mean streets of Collinsville, Illinois, back in the day, you know? <laughs> no, and, and I, I tell you, and uh, we used to play at ETSU even after I graduated, and those were some physical games, uh, s- some super physical games, and – I just didn't like calling fouls unless somebody really, really battered me. And it just, we we had a group and we played all the time and we called our own fouls and we just had a lot of fun. It was three on three half court. To me, is is the purest form of ball. You can do pick and roll and stuff and, and you know, and it's not too crowded. But yeah, I didn't I didn't call a ton of fouls and I didn't commit a lot of fouls. People might have said because I was a little lazy on defense, which I probably was. Look, man, I didn't want to bring that up, but you kind of got that reputation, you know. <laughs> you know what else I found out, Kevin? This What's is crazy. That? <laughs> After all these years, I'm six foot five in shoes, which is a measurement in, in the NBA, but I only have a six foot wingspan. Like, so I've got a negative wingspan. That's why one of the reasons why I was such a crummy defender. I never realized that because my wife always jokes about all oh, you use those long arms to lift, get something off a shelf for me. And I'm like, I really don't have long arms relative to my height. Uh, and I can't palm a basketball. So it's sort of like teasing me. We'll get, we'll make him six, five, but we'll give him short arms and small, <laughs> smaller hands and just tantalize him. Uh, I only dunked once in my life. That was at Quantico Marine Base. We were playing some pickup and warming up before we started. And one day I just, I just, I don't know, dribbled hard to the hoop and I just jammed one, just threw it down. And it immediately sparked this contest for anybody to top it. Nobody could. I have not done that since. (laughs) (laughs) Throw it down. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, but I, I've always dreamed. I've had dreams, in fact, where I could get up like some of these kids and just, just crush that thing. But, uh, but yeah, how do we get off on that? I don't know, but <laughs> this has uh, been the, one of the more interesting parts of this podcast for sure. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up with a guy who did have great height and great wingspan, and that's Bill Walton. The thirty for thirty, they they showed the last few parts just in the last few days. Uh, the luckiest guy in the world, a uh, four part thirty for thirty. 
followed his career in life from San Diego uh, as a high school star to UCLA, where he went 88-2. and two. Uh, His NBA career plagued by injuries, a second career as a commentator. Talk, talked a lot about his family and his love for music, especially the Grateful Dead, his uh, political activism. Uh, Walton won the MVP, won two NBA titles, first with Portland and then with the Boston Celtics uh, in 1986. But, uh, Chris, I know you haven't seen it all, so I won't play spoiler here, but uh, it, I, I think anybody who's a basketball fan and is – you know, remembers either Bill Walton playing or has heard him as a commentator would enjoy watching that and just learning more about a, a guy who really is one of the more interesting characters in the history of the game. And I was thinking about this too. As time goes by, we know so much more about men and women who are stars in, in sports. We, we feel like we know everything about them now. A guy like Bill Walton, you know some about him. You don't know everything about him. And it feels like the, those characters are, are going to go away. You know, the, the mystery surrounding those stars are, is going to go away some as time goes forward. But I, I really did, enjoyed watching that and uh, learning more about and remembering some things that I had forgotten about Bill Walton and his career and his life. You know, that's a very great point that you make. Uh, I don't cover pro sports, never have on a consistent basis except for golf. And, you know, their publicists – Pro athletes are ever more shielded and guarded from the press. And there are certain schools that shall remain nameless in college that that really don't try to go out of their way to help the press. And, and you know, I grew up in an era where locker rooms were open, they're closed now, and as they should be with, you know, fairness and equality with female journalists who do a great job. Uh, you know, so if everybody can't have access, you should just close it off. I get that. Uh, but... You know, Bill Walton is one of those last of a kind. He's kind of like this great, mysterious shaman dude. You know, he's even got the TP to prove it. (laughs) And uh, those kind of colorful characters. I know you and I are both baseball fans. And you think back to the days uh, of Yogi Berra and people like that, just colorful dudes. And I just hope that the color is not drained from athletics, that we don't just get so homogenized and careful, uh, and, you know, as long as 30 for 30 is out there uh, doing their thing, maybe we can still get the, this great insight into people like Walt, who he's one of my favorite players of all time. Uh, and, you know, I got to say it, he confuses me a lot, but I like listening to him and, and, and Dave. Uh, they're the perfect foils for one another. Uh, on those Thursday night Pac-12 games. Yeah, those are great broadcasts. Uh, I mean, you know, if you're looking for a traditional broadcast of a basketball game, it's probably not for you. But if you're looking for something high on entertainment, that's as good as it gets with Dave Pasha and Bill Walton. And as you no, say, he, uh, Pasha is, is the perfect foil for Bill, you know, kind of playing the straight man to, to Bill Walton doing whatever he's going to do, which is totally unpredictable. I, I've, I've tried to sort of put myself in Dave Pasha's shoes at times and think, how would I handle this if I was calling this game with Bill Walton? And and you got to just basically let him do whatever you know, say whatever he's going to say, and then you just try to keep the broadcast on the rails. But uh, no, I, I think you could do a good job. <laughs> I really, I think do. it would be fun to try. I really do. I, I think it would be. Uh, well, you're the king of the segue, and and no matter what he says, I think you would have uh, the ability to respond. And, and Dave, Dave does that well too but i I think because you are the king of the segway (laughs) and speaking of segways we can't get out of here without talking a little bit about the nba draft uh as you know i do this draft book for uh, nba tv and i gotta read to you what i wrote about 
uh, Victor Wembanyama. Okay. Uh, AKA Wemby. Um, I have, I, I do a bio on every player and they have an NBA projection where you think he'll be chosen. And I said, I wrote on, on for, for Wemby. I said, if Wemby isn't the number one pick in the draft, check your surroundings and see if everything looks the same as usual, because if not, it's possible you've been transported to a parallel universe where seven foot four players who excel at every position on the court are commonplace. <laughs> <laughs> Which is my way of saying he is the most sure bet to be uh, the number one pick since LeBron James. He might be the best prospect since LeBron James. And uh, I can't wait to, to see how it goes after him. Uh, whether Brandon Miller or Scoot Henderson goes next, it'll be cool to see. Well, whether we're in this universe or uh, some alternate world that Chris looks at with his new telescope, it's always fun to do the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. Chris, uh, enjoyed it as always, and we'll talk to you next time, man. Thanks, buddy.